very, very good morning to you. Uh, I'm one of the pastors. It is a privilege and a thrill to bring to you God's word. We're going through gospel versus religion, a sermon series. I've entitled this First Love. If you have your Bibles, it'll also be projected overhead. Let's turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. uh, Sorry. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I'll read this for us. Let's give our full attention to it. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. This is the very words of Jesus. Thanks be to God. The final book of the Holy Scriptures, Jesus Christ says he holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars are angels. And he also walks and moves among seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands represent churches. In this chapter and in the next, there are seven love letters or messages from the Lord Jesus Christ to seven churches throughout ancient Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. This morning, we just want to cover the first to the church in Ephesus. Jesus speaks to them, and he begins by saying in verse 2, I know. Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus. And seven churches are a perfect number. It's representative of all churches. And Jesus basically saying to all churches, I know. Jesus knows what? He knows all things. He knows everything. He knows our emotions and our motivations. He knows our outer works and our interior design. He knows our attitudes before we are very competent at anything. Jesus knows. The author of this book who received this heavenly vision, John himself, recorded in chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. This is what happened to him when he figured out Jesus knows. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's uh, quite an introduction, quite a calling card. And Apostle John, when he knew that Jesus knows, and he faced him in his glorious resurrected body, he says he wanted to die. He fell dead. 
And Jesus introduced himself. He says, I hold Hades and death in my hands. I've died, but I'm going to live forever. Who in the world can withstand the complete and perfect and pure knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Just like John, he says, I wanted to die. But notice the first words that Jesus said. Fear not. Fear not. Even though Jesus knows, <laughs> fear not. Well, here's what he knew about the church in Ephesus. Verses 2 and 3, I know your works. Uh, I mean, think about that with me. How, how abundant, how good, how glorious must these works have been that Jesus would notice them and commend them for it? Jesus goes on, I know your toil, toil. This church works hard. They labor, they sweat. He goes on and says, I know your patient endurance. He actually says it twice. You have patiently endured. Evidently, this church was being persecuted, attacked, or maybe threatened to be split within. But in any case, Jesus commends them for their hard, hard, abundant works. For their toil and for how patiently they endure. And then he goes on and says, you cannot bear with those who practice or teach evil. You discern between those who are false apostles and those who are not. True apostles and those who are not. You see, this church was founded by none other than Apostle Paul. It was handed over to his young Disciple Timothy, you would figure this church was solid, like biblically grounded, theologically discerning. They can tell the difference between true biblical gospel and doctrine versus those that pretend to be. Verse 3, Jesus goes on and says, once again, I know. You are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And then he closes with this as he praises them. And you have not grown weary. Now listen, this church at Ephesus, they're machines. They're not tired yet. Like nobody's complaining. This is too much work. No, Jesus knows that they're not even tired yet. And he commends them for it. Evidently, they had busy hands and busy feet. They had big and bright brains as well, theologically speaking. But they had hearts that were growing cold. Busy hands and feet. Big and bright brains, but cold hearts. Cold hearts. That church had lost its luster. The church was beginning to lose its compelling, beautiful, and attractive witness. And when Jesus says, even if you do not repent now, I will remove the lampstand. What he means by that is, you will become ineffectual. Yes, the church will physically exist, but you will no longer be a potent or bright witness for my sake because you have lost your first love. You see, Jesus knows, Jesus knows, and so Jesus corrects. See, I want you to notice, we only read the first five verses. If you read to the end of this 
uh, letter to the church at Ephesus, the way that it is framed is Jesus begins with praise for their endurance and toil and works. And then he ends with this glorious promise of a crown, a reward into eternal glory. Jesus loads this passage, this letter with praise and his promise. And of course, it's with his personal presence, but right in the middle. Yes, it's tucked right there in the middle in verse four. We cannot avoid it is a word of correction. And the word of correction is this, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've lost your first love. Now, my friends, this morning, how do you react to that? See, how does that make you feel? In other words, when the Lord Jesus Christ examines and knows all things and sees all things about you, and he shows up, through his word and spirit, or maybe through a mature, wise, loving Christian person, and they point out and confront you and correct you, how do you feel? How do you react? Because it's especially in those moments when you are corrected or rebuked. When Jesus points out, but there is this glaring weak point. There is this aspect or dimension of your life or a tendency that you do that is not right, or it's missing. How do you respond? And I like to sketch three different reactions that reflect three different motivations at work. Three standard reactions when Jesus does come and correct. Here's the first. Let me do what I want. The first Standard reaction is, or feeling is, leave me alone. Let me do what I please. Because after all, Jesus, I've heard it Sunday after Sunday for many, many years. You love me anyway, right? I mean, Jesus, you died and rose again for me. You're going to still love me anyway, no matter what I do. This is the rebellious motivation of pride. Leave me alone. Get off my back. I know you love me no matter what I do. But this kind of reaction or this motivation actually shows that you really haven't grasped the love of Jesus Christ for you. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it reads, Anybody who does not love does not know God because God is love. You see, you cannot be and you have not really been loved by Jesus, at least recently, if you have no love for Jesus in return. There's this sort of a self-defining, self-deluding, self-centering, self-gratifying kind of love in our modern age, but it is a modern invention because real love always requires another person. Real love has laws uh, outside of myself. You see, in verses 2 and 3, the real love of God who is in Jesus Christ can come and praise you for two full verses. But that same love can also move and stand against you in verse 4. When or if... 
Jesus points out or corrects you about anything. This is a golden opportunity that you and I get to actually see what our first love really is. You see, listen, when Jesus comes and points out what you lack or what could be done better, the way you respond actually shows the first love of your heart. And it just might be yourself. You see, for those of us in this room who say, well, let me do what I want. Leave me alone. I don't know why you're correcting me. And even if Jesus does correct you and his people come and tell you all the reasons of why this would be harmful and counterproductive, anything that would actually be addictive or dangerous or harmful to you and your family, people keep telling you this over and over and over and over. Do you know why it never filters through? Do you know why it never makes a dent? Do you know why it never actually pierces your heart? Because you filter it all out. You actually completely just edit it all out through the motivation which is dominant in your heart is, I love myself more than you. It doesn't matter how much you tell a person that that would be wrong. Can you please stop doing that? But if that person loves himself or herself more than you, it really is not going to make any change. And for those of us who say, let me do what I want before Jesus, what you're really saying is, you see, I love my sin. I love myself more than my Savior. You know, I find biblical authors throughout the Holy Scriptures and every Christ follower that I know who is genuine. Christian people recognize that the worst kind of folly and maybe the most self-destructive thing out there is where the love of yourself is your first love. I mean, for instance, in Psalm chapter 119, verses 36 and 37, the psalmist Praise these really active, strong verbs to God. He says, incline me, God. Another verse, he says, turn my eyes, turn my eyes. My eyes keep looking at that. Turn my eyes. And then he closes that majestic chapter by saying, seek your servant. Seek your servant because I stray. You see, here's what Christian people begin to recognize and deal with. They're saying, you know, if I were truly, fully myself, if I wanted to become the freest, most authentic version of myself, I would just want to be my authentic self. What Christian people begin to realize is that not all of the desires for you to be yourself are actually good. You see, what if some of my most raging, deepest, ongoing desires are counterproductive? They're enormously deceptive. They look and smell and taste sweet right now. But it's actual poison to my soul and my body. What if some of me, Harold becoming truly Harold, authentically and freely and fully Harold, what if some of those desires that drive toward that are dangerous, if not deadly? And this is why some of the modern hymns say, Lord, prone to wander, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart and seal it for the courts above. Let me do what I want is not liberating, it's enslaving. Let me do what I want cannot come from someone who is in love with Jesus. Because the last thing anyone who loves Jesus would say 
is just leave me alone. Let me do what I want. It's a reflection that my first love is myself. Here's a second reaction, common. Jesus corrects you. He points out that one verse in some of you in this room. All you think about is verse (laughs) 4. Everything else is thrown out. Oh, that person criticized me, crushed me. Oh, I thought that person said like four or five nice things. No, I only remember the one bad thing. And so Jesus comes to you with verse 4, and that's all you remember, and this is how you respond. Uh, I better do it or else. The first is the rebellious motivation of pride, and the second is the religious motivation of fear. The religious motivation of fear. This most likely comes from you have attended Sunday schools a lot. You have been very, very well versed and well churched. And you grew up in an environment where you are very strict and careful, but awfully selective about what to obey. But this motivation comes from the heart of, if I don't work on this, then my life will be ruined. God is going to curse me. He's not going to bless me. And if I do do this a lot better and develop it like a strength finder, then God, of course, will have to come and bless my business, make my family better, and reward me. But you see, again, my friends, I'd better do this or else. Ironically speaking, your first love is, it's still yourself. Let me do what I want. It's the love of self. That's your first love. Well, I'd better do it or else. Your first love is yourself. Charles Spurgeon, that masterful preacher, told, once upon a time there was a farmer who grew a carrot, an enormous, ginormous, it was his best carrot that he ever grew. And he came into the courtroom of a king and he presented the, the, uh, his best carrot to the king saying, this is, this is the healthiest, greatest carrot I've ever grown. I want to give this to you, O king, as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king was truly touched because the king discerned the motives of the farmer's heart. And before the farmer could leave the courtroom, he says, wait, I see that you are an excellent steward of the earth. I have a huge plot of land as well. I'd like you to have that as too. He got a huge plot of land for offering a huge carrot to the king. A nobleman in the courtroom who overheard this conversation thought to himself, wow, you get land for a carrot? Wait till till you see what I can do. The next day he comes to the king and he brings in this handsome black stallion. He presented a horse. And he says to the king, this is my greatest, largest, most beautiful horse that I have ever bred. Oh, king, I want to give it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And then the king responded simply by saying, thank you, and dismissed him from the courtroom. On the way out, the nobleman was so perplexed and stunned, he turned around and said to the king, king, I don't understand what's going on. And here's what the king said. The farmer gave me the carrot. But you were giving yourself the horse. 
That farmer gave me the carrot. All you were doing was giving yourself the horse. Oh, I preached this to myself before you. Beat me up pretty good this week. That for those of you who react and respond in such a way with a religious motivation, that basically you're using God to serve you. You always want God to get you things. You're maneuvering to get God to do certain things. And my friend, I want to tell you this morning, Jesus knows. Jesus knows all about that. The rebel's motive of pride or the religious person's motive of fear. And so Jesus came down into our world to bring about a whole new motivation. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't here just to change our emotions. The gospel of Jesus Christ came to also change your motivations even before your emotions. God does not want your responses filled with pride or fear. God does not praise or commend you for your autonomy or feelings of slavery. The gospel of Jesus alone brings about motivations, which is not a compromise or some weird combination of reaction number one or two. No, he wants to give you a whole new set of motivations. It's otherworldly. It's supernatural. It's a whole new life. Most people in the world do not operate like this ever. But God wants you to have something else at work in your heart. So reaction number three. Is I love to love him back. I would just love to love him back. Is there any way, small or big, trivial or mundane, or grandiose, noticed or not? Jesus is just is just some. Can I find ways, please? Let me find all the ways. To love you back. Jesus one taught, once taught that he summed up the entire Old Testament law in two commandments. We're only going to read the first in Matthew chapter 22 verses 36 to 38. Teacher, someone asked, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul. And with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And now you see, for those of you in this room who are religious, or I don't care how long you've gone to a church, you hear a commandment like this, and your immediate reaction is this. Well, I better go home and do that. Pastor, can you tell me all the practical ways of what it means to do it with your heart? Then give me all the practical ways of what it means to do with all your soul. And then give me all the practical principles and applications of how you do it with your mind. Just give me the checklist. I'm going to go home and do that. I'm going to work harder at that because I better do this or else. And I want to tell you something this morning. 
My friend, that reaction is religion without the gospel. You grew up religious without Jesus. In fact, you were speaking Christianese without being Christian. Because this commandment is issued by someone who didn't just tell you to go and do this. Because here's what the gospel tells us. What if? Just what if? What if? What if when you read this greatest commandment of all, to love God with all that you have, it begins to click that Jesus Christ himself came to love you with all that he had. What if for the first time it registered that Jesus Christ who commanded and taught such grandiose things that he turned around himself and loved you with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind and that at the cross Jesus gave up his heart so that he could give you a new heart? What if that gospel is true? What if the main point of Jesus Christ was not to command you to do these things, but Jesus Christ actually did it himself, and that is the only way in which you become a Christian, a child of God, saved and born again and changed inside out. Religion is the futile attempt to change your outsides so that hopefully your insides will change too. Oh, the Bible says... But the gospel is the very power of God to save and to change people inside out. You see, this morning, if any of this interests you, if that gospel sounds interesting and sweet to you, when you begin to understand how much Jesus loved you, we love because he first loved us. Then you're entering into a whole new world with a new set of motivations and a whole new way of life. Oh, my friends, the power of Jesus in the gospel. And so verse 5 we read, Jesus telling us as he closes this passage in which we read, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Remember, therefore, from where you fall, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Jesus says, you got to remember. If you've lost your first love, do you remember what it's like when Jesus first loved you? If you've lost and it's grown cold, do you remember what it was like When your first love with Jesus, you see your first love awakens you, focuses you, energizes you like nothing else. Remember, your first love makes time literally fly by. You can't even believe how long you talked on the phone in that conversation, but you turn around and say, I couldn't believe how many hours flew by. Your first love In your first love, there is nothing too crazy, too difficult, or hard to do. I'll walk 500 miles to get to you. 
I remember when we were going through a revival in my undergrad years. I look back and I know it was a revival. That's a special outpouring of God's spirit. A bunch of college students on the East Bay would get on a bus. A very poorly maintained bus, by the way. And it was driven by another fellow student. And we piled into the bus around 8 a.m., crossed the bridge of San Francisco, going to this little city called Daly City. And we spent the entire day there. And everything was easy and enjoyable and sweet. And yes, as I look back, I will be the first to tell you that a lot of things we did back then that was young and dumb, for sure. Oh, some of our mission trips, those should be illegal. I would never let my daughters go like that. Young and dumb for sure, but I am also afraid to confess to you in so many different ways. We've lost that loving feeling too. Jesus says, I have one thing against you. One thing against you. You have abandoned your love at first. And when you are in a truly loving relationship, you can handle and you actually appreciate any and all kinds of correction. In my freshman year at Cal, my dad called me. It was regular. But this one I will not forget. Two things stood out. He was talking to me as a father. You know, Harold, in the long run, it doesn't matter if you're smart or talented. It really matters much more how hard you work at it. You got to work hard. You got to work hard. Don't, don't, don't take it for granted that if you think you have an advantage just in your natural settings or the way you grew up, please don't ever be presumptuous about it. You always got to work hard at things. I'll never forget that. The second thing, which was quite surprising, was he went on to tell me, um, Harold, I also want to share with you that I need you to pray for me. I have ongoing temptations and struggles as a man. And we had a man-to-man talk about self-control, about lust, about potential adulteries, about, Harold, you need to save yourself, save yourself, save yourself for one woman in the future. Only be with one woman, one wife. And at no point in that phone call did I ever, ever feel that that was intrusive, grating, burdensome, or offensive. Because I knew without a doubt my dad wanted nothing but the best for me. He wanted short-term and long-term well-being and happiness for his son. My friend, how much more with God, who is our Heavenly Father? We just went through a mini-series in the book of Proverbs. Do you know that all godly instruction and even giving of the law is supposed to happen in the context of a father and son loving and transparent relationship? Jesus says, you got to remember. Do you remember what it's like with your first love? Where all the words, all the ways... And all the works of whom you love is gold. It's honey to your soul. It's medicine for all your hurt. It is life eternal. It is more riches and jewelry and splendor and reputation and honor and glory than the world could ever offer to you. Such is 
the love of Jesus Christ. Remember. We sketch three different motivations, but they're totally three different ways of life, are they not? And they are as different and as far as heaven is from hell. My friend, make no mistake this morning. Please, please hear me out. I hope someone's listening. You cannot have reaction number one. You cannot live out reaction number two and expect that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. Because I don't know anybody who loves anyone who would want the recipient of your love to be so dreadfully fearful of you or to say, hey, you should just let me be me. Oh, the love of God is so much more grand and holy and perfect that at certain times it must defy you. It must come against you. It must call you out and correct you. Because God knows. He knows you and he knows what's in store. And in that same love of God, he praises you. He commends you. He promises you with eternal reward. And he gives you himself. All the way throughout. Other people may not be able to tell the difference in your life. You may not be even able to tell the difference of your life. But I'll tell you, God knows, Jesus knows, the Holy Spirit knows. I just beg of you to consider this morning, do you know? Do you know, my friend? What is really going on in your heart? God wants, God deserves, and God is worthy of. All our love. Remember what it's like. Jesus said in Luke chapter 7 verse 47. We can post that. Therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. I know why your love is little. I know why my love gets so poor and paltry and little. It's because I forget how much I've been forgiven. I just forget how much I've been forgiven. Who here in this room can honestly say that all your life God has not treated you better than you deserve? Who here in their right minds can say that God has not been so tender and gracious and patient with you? Exceedingly kind. Those who have been forgiven little will love little. But those who remember how much they have been forgiven will love much. Do you want to know why Apostle Peter loved and followed Jesus Christ all the way to his own martyrdom, hung upside down upon a cross? 
Do you want to know the secret of how a man who was just like you and me, scared and cowardly and in love with himself and his own pride more than anything else in the world, could end up asking, I am not worthy to die the way that Jesus died. You must hang me upside down. What happened to him? Here's what happened to him. It's not because Peter never sinned. It's not because Peter never sinned. Peter saw what Jesus did with all his sins. Peter was gripped by what Jesus did to forgive him all his sins. I don't know how many times in your life, I do pray you don't have to have it often, where you broke down, wept upon your knees because you sinned against your friend. You sinned against your children. You sinned against your spouse. And he or she knows. Oh, they know. But then somehow that person, knowing fully well all they know, could love you the next morning by forgiving you, bearing the hurt and the cost, but by moving on as if it never happened. I'll tell you, you're going to weep for good. And that is the most intoxicating, enthralling, takeover of your heart kind of love you can ever experience. Remember the love of Jesus Christ. You were first loved because you were forgiven. You were first loved because you were forgiven. You were first loved because you were forgiven. You were not first loved because you did everything right. And then we close with this. Jesus says, I want you to remember this in verse 5 and then repent. And then he spells out what repentance means. Go back to doing the things you did at first. Do you want that first love back? Do you want to light a fire, which we just sang this morning, to a cold, deadening heart? Repent. It's all about returning to your first love, confessing and forsaking other lovers, and going back to doing what you used to do at first. Jude 21 commands us, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How do we do it? Two practical things and we close. Practical repentance. Number one, you got to get back into shape. Number one, you got to get back into shape. Several years ago, I don't know the exact year, I uh, was on our church softball team in the Cerritos League. I remember the park. It was one of the first games, and I showed up cold but confident. Never practiced. Liking myself, I grew up in youth group, youth baseball, played some in high school. Thought I was pretty good. My wife was sitting there. My daughters were sitting there. And um, I swung once, swung twice, swung thrice, not even a foul tip. I struck out at softball. Softball, that ginormous white ball that comes really slow to you. I completely whiffed. Sonny from the stands cackled so hard she spit out sunflower seeds. My youngest daughter, Elizabeth, of course, she said, you're not good, Dad. 
You're not good. Humiliated, I realized <laughs> it doesn't matter how much you want to hit that ball. I was so out of shape. My brain and my body coordination was just so out of whack. I really thought I could hit it. I didn't hit it once. You know, likewise, just like being in like physical playing shape where your body begins to obey and cooperate. Uh, listen close. Some of you in this room are in such bad spiritual shape. You're in such bad spiritual shape that every temptation is almost impossible to resist. You're in such bad spiritual shape. You're so used to slandering and gossiping, making yourself feel better about someone by bad-mouthing somebody else and making other people feel worse about that person. You're so used to that, you don't know how to stop. Some of you are so used to what you do with your computer, you don't know how to stop. And when you actually go through crisis or suffering that's really in grander scale in the future days, what makes you think that if you're out of such spiritual shape that you're going to resist all those other temptations to come? Oh, here's what Apostle Paul told his young disciple Timothy once again in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. He commanded him, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Here's what Paul said. You can work out and be physically fit and buff. You're going to fight off disease. You're going to feel more energetic. You're going to sleep better. You'll probably do your work better. Wonderful benefits from God. But you get into spiritual shape. He says, there are joys and blessings and strength in this life and into the next. And he says, the value you cannot compare with your physical fitness. You got to get back into shape. Repent. Do the things in which you did at first when you had your first love. Here's number two. You just get as close as you can. You get as close as you can. There's two brothers in the 1950s called the Everly Brothers. And it's such a... uh, it's such a captivating song. It's such a sweet song. I won't sing it for you. I won't dare. But they sing, I need you so that I could die. I love you so and that is why. Whenever I want to, all I have to do is dream, 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 dream. I could only hum it. You know that song? It's so beautiful. You might think that was not beautiful, Harold, at all. You know, when you love somebody, you can't stop thinking about the person. And uh, you end up daydreaming. You cannot stop daydreaming about that person. And so Jesus left much better things behind so that you can stay as close to him as possible. Jesus left better things than dreaming so you can stay as close as you can to him. His word is like his very breath. His word is his very mouth. You can hear him and listen to him anytime you want. 
Praying is you talking and messaging and writing him back. Staying in close contact. There's a funny little passage that Apostle Paul says to married folks. For those of you who are married, once in a while, I want you to stop having sex. <laughs> you know it's there in First Corinthians? I want you to stop having sex because um, there are special times and seasons of your life you should have extended concentrated prayer. Meaning prayer could be more satisfying, more sacred than sex. Oh, and the singing of his gospel truths together. Where singing excites our affections and our emotions. Where in small group and in Sunday gatherings where we fellowship, our physical reminders, and they're the very presence of Jesus Christ. And then we get to do sacraments. Sacraments in worship where Jesus promises to say, I'm going to show up there. I will always show up there to to be with you. And as you trust and obey my commands, I am always with you to the end of the age. My friends, I'm really glad to tell you this morning. There is nothing better I have to do on a Sunday. There has never been. And there never will be anything better I could do on a Sunday. I say that not because it's my job as your pastor. But it's because when I am with you in worship to our risen king. I can feel that I can get close to Jesus Christ. Who loved and lived and died for me. Let me read something that this one Mrs. Burry said. Charles Spurgeon quotes her. I look forward to meeting this Mrs. Burry. I don't know her first name, but can we project um, what she says about closest? We shall never love Christ much except we live near to him. Love to Christ is dependent on our nearness to him. It is just like the planets and the sun. Why are some of the planets cold? Why do they move at such slow rate? Simply because they are so far from the sun. So beloved, if we live near to Christ, we cannot help loving him. The heart that is near, Jesus must be full of his love. But when we live days and weeks and months without personal intercourse, without real fellowship, how can we maintain love towards a stranger? He must be a friend. And we must stick close to him as he sticks close to us, closer than a brother. Or else we shall never have our first love. Here are some facts. God has not moved away from you. You have. God has not changed. He does not change. You change. God does not forget you. You do. God will never forsake you. You have. The love of God for you is as bright, as intense, and infinite, and ferocious as it ever has been from the first day you recognized and received it in Jesus. So remember and repent. 
remember and repent. And he will continue to have your love intensify, grow for his own sake. There might be a few of you in this room, you realize all my life, I've always said, let me be me, leave me alone. Or I've been saying, I better do it or else. You know, Jesus, I actually understand today that the gospel means you change my heart. I actually want to love you back. I would love to love you back. All you have to do, pray to Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Come into my life and the very spirit of God is going to write the laws of God onto your heart. He will give you a whole new way of life with a whole new motivation. You just come and pray to him. Shall we pray together? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the letter and the words of Jesus to the church at Ephesus. We thank you that you know. You know all about us. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to save us too. To pour out your life and all of your blood and all of your righteousness and all of your love so that we would love to love you back. Please take our hearts and our minds and our souls and our strength this morning, every single one who is in this place. Would you do that, Lord Jesus? We know you can. Would you pray with me a couple more moments as we respond? And pray from the heart what you need from him. Jesus answers every prayer. He came to die for you. There is nothing he cannot do for you. Let's pray.